Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, December 19th, 2022, the 698th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple of days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the social media, the writing, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So it was a big weekend full of Elon Musk and Twitter news, and we will definitely get to that. There are new Twitter files. Part six was released on Friday afternoon. Matt Taibbi then backed that up with a supplemental thread over the weekend, and then part seven has just dropped today. But the biggest news, or so the regime hopes, is that the 
illegitimate January 6th committee plans to refer charges against Donald Trump. This is the big finale of the January 6th committee. CNN is all over it. It's right on the front page of their website. They are letting everyone know that the walls are closing in again. This is it, everybody. This is the big move. We've finally got Trump. This is the silver bullet that is going to end Trump once and for all. We're going to refer the charges over to the DOJ and then the DOJ, they're going to get Trump and we will have completed our seven year, seven and a half year long mission to finally destroy Donald Trump. And then everything will be okay. Everything will be set right in the world. Everything will be back to the way it was before. And Trump and all his QAnons will finally realize that they've been wrong the whole time. Donald Trump actually is a hardened criminal, just as they've been telling us for the last seven and a half years with absolutely no proof. And they have no idea how they're going to make any of these ridiculous charges that they refer to the DOJ actually stick. So CNN's coverage leading into this major 1 p.m. Eastern announcement is just breathless talking about the insurrection. And sure, even Benny Thompson, the chairman of the January 6th committee, has objected to electors in the past, but he didn't start an insurrection, an armed insurrection. Well, not armed, but it was still an insurrection. And yeah, okay, they didn't try to actually take over the government. And there were definitely uh, FBI agents and informants and other operatives there. There were some random Ukrainians. Antifa was there. John Sullivan was there. Jade Sacker was there with John Sullivan as they broke in and then walked around filming things. Very proud of themselves. Nancy Pelosi's daughter was there on Take Your Daughter to Work so she can film the Insurrection Day. And she had a whole film crew with her. They were filming as windows were being broken by people that they knew. But none of that matters in the world of Biden supporters who still say, I know what I saw on TV. Sure you did, commie. You always know what you saw on TV. You never know anything besides what you saw on TV. And that's kind of the problem here. But you know what you saw on TV because you saw it over and over and over again. They took the same film and looped it again and again and again, made everybody think this is what's happening here. Donald Trump did this when he said, I know you're planning to march peacefully and patriotically to the Capitol and make your voices heard. That was the incitement to insurrection, because during the speech, he said, we need to fight like hell or we are not going to have a country anymore. Something that he said a great many times, something that The communists say all the time, including and especially throughout the summer of 2020 during the BLM Antifa domestic terrorism riots and looting and assault while they burned down cities and Kamala Harris helped bail them out of jail. There were quite a few Democrats encouraging that insurrection all over the place, all over television, all over Twitter. All of the totally corrupt and complicit media went right along with them. 
But no one needs to mention all that. We're focused on Donald Trump and his terrible supporters, as Jake Tapper called them in his lead in to the committee hearing. Donald Trump and his minions tried to overthrow the country. That's what he said. Minions. Are those the people around Donald Trump or are we the minions? And how does that compare to the people around Joe Biden and his supporters? Joe Biden has a person who he put in charge of nuclear waste who dresses in women's clothes and tells everyone he's non-binary and then goes through the airport stealing people's luggage. Is he a minion? No, of course not. You can't say that about someone who's part of the LGBTQIA++ community. You can only say it about Trump and his supporters. So the committee walks into the hearing room and they sit down. There's a very somber mood right from the beginning. Benny Thompson smacks down his gavel and he gives a long speech about how important democracy is and the sanctity of our vote. And we know that the elections went perfect. And for the first time in the history of the country, someone is challenging the legitimacy of our elections and it must be stopped. And then he brings Liz Cheney in to tell a story about her past and her forefathers, how great they were, how they served the country. She didn't mention her dad for whatever reason, just a grandfather or a great grandfather. You know, they saved the country. Liz Cheney wants to steal a little bit of their valor. You can't doubt Liz Cheney's patriotism, even Benny Thompson, the Democrat, <laughs> and they're on opposite sides. You know, they fight like cats and dogs. He even said that there is no better patriot in this country than Liz Cheney. Jake Tapper talked about her before the, the hearing started. He said she was willing to give up her career in politics, at, at least for now, in order to make sure that this committee was successful in their work. And she gives a very long opening speech about that history, about how patriotic she is and how everybody knows that even if Donald Trump didn't do something illegal, he did something immoral, so immoral that that man can never be allowed to hold public office in America ever again, no matter what the voters want. That is really what she's saying. She didn't say that last part, of course. She just wants to make the situation so that it's impossible for voters to ever express whether or not they want Donald Trump to be president again. That is not an okay outcome. She knows that the voters will want that. So she has to make sure it can't be an option. It couldn't be more obvious what they're doing. They're telling you absolutely all of it, except for that little last end part. Donald Trump is unfit to ever hold office again. So we need to make sure he can't do that or else the voters might put him back there. And we can't allow the voters to have that sort of choice. They just can't be trusted. But, but our elections are very safe and very secure. And we are in full support of democracy and in full support of the voters expressing what they want. It's just not if they want Donald Trump to be back in office. That's not okay. 
So that is where we draw the line. And we only draw the line there now. You got to understand, we didn't draw the line there before the 2020 election. We would have never had these thoughts if Donald Trump hadn't told his minions to walk peacefully and patriotically to the Capitol and make their voices heard. That event was so scary that we have just changed our ideas. We now realize that Donald Trump is unfit to hold that office and that he cannot be allowed to even pursue it. But we never thought that until the insurrection. We didn't think it in 2020. We didn't make it clear to everyone that Donald Trump could not be allowed to be elected president no matter what. You see, people like that would never, ever steal elections. They wouldn't even have thought about overriding the will of the voters at that point. And thank goodness the voters came out in droves for Joe Biden through universal mail-in ballots with absolutely no chain of custody and no signature matching. And the voting was done on the machines and election day voting was an absolute mess. And sure, there's no reason to trust any of that at all, particularly not the final numbers. The idea that Joe Biden got 81 million real legal American votes from his basement. But we know that that election was the most safe and the most secure. So thank goodness the American people said they didn't want Donald Trump. But just to make sure that Donald Trump, who Joe Biden wiped the floors with, could never hold office as president in the United States of America again, we need to make sure it's not an option. We know the voters don't really like him. That's what the 2020 election showed. Joe Biden, 81 million real legal American votes. So popular that the entire electorate increased by 20% in one cycle. That's how popular Joe Biden was. But despite Joe Biden's popularity, we need to make sure that Donald Trump can never be president again, even if the voters want him to be. And they definitely, definitely didn't want him to be in 2020, which is why we're going to make sure that they don't have the option ever again. And just so you can be clear about this, because I know it's a bit confusing. Benny Thompson said the future of our democracy rests in your hands. It's up to the people of this country to decide who deserves the public trust, who will put fidelity to the Constitution and democracy above all else, who will abide by the rule of law, no matter the outcome. So you see, they do trust in the people to decide who the appropriate leaders are to govern our country, except for Donald Trump. We have to make sure that Donald Trump isn't an option. But besides that, we are totally willing for the people to decide who leads them. It just can't be Donald Trump. Just in this one instance, we have to change our principles. And only in this one instance, it's just about Donald Trump. We're going to take Donald Trump off the table. But as soon as we do that, then we're totally okay with the voters deciding who they want to lead them. It just can't be Donald Trump. So the voters can decide. They just can't decide the thing we don't want them to decide. And that's not the normal thing, right? The rest of the time, totally good with voters deciding this time. We just can't allow that. And we will never use that power anywhere else ever. And we will always make a television show for you when we are going to use that power. And so if you don't see the television show about us using that power, you can assume we are not using that power. And trust us, we are principled. Liz Cheney's grandfather was 
a military man. So that means Liz Cheney's honest. Don't you understand? So Adam Schiff comes out and talks about Donald Trump's call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. A story came out in the Washington Post. It's almost two years ago, if not two years at this point. And they played a clip of that phone call where Donald Trump asked Brad Raffensperger to find 11,800 votes, whatever the number was, that would overturn the election because there were hundreds of thousands of illegal, invalid votes that were counted in order to give Joe Biden the win. They discussed all of those varieties during the phone call. And Donald Trump said, you don't have to get all of it. Why don't you just show me the evidence about this or this or this? Just find me the 11,800. You can do it. You have all these different varieties of fraud. Why not just do it? And that framing is totally obvious when you listen to the entire phone call, which of course was leaked not long after the Washington Post story came out. The entire story blew up right in their faces within hours. And Adam Schiff is still going with it two years later. This is the man who made up all of the evidence about Russiagate. He always claimed that it was because he was on the intelligence committee that he had this special intelligence. He couldn't tell anybody what it was, but he said, trust me, I have the intelligence and the walls are closing in again. Trust me. And then he made up the entire transcript of Donald Trump's phone call in the prelude to the Ukraine impeachment hoax. Adam Schiff lies to the American public in formal settings all the time, and he's doing it again. And then they pass the mic to crying Adam Kinzinger, who Tucker Carlson rightly pointed out last week, seems to have transitioned into a menopausal woman. So the January 6th committee grand finale on television is an absolute joke. Except, of course, to the child brains and the audiences of CNN and MSNBC who are watching every little bit of this, feeling their emotions so hard. They know that Donald Trump and his supporters tried to stage a violent insurrection against our democracy. And now they're having it all confirmed once again by the television. And I actually really do pity these people because it cannot be fun to continue being lied to all the time, know you're being lied to, and then also feel like you have to go repeat the lies yourself because that's the only way that everyone won't realize you've been lying and you've been tricked the entire time. So they're going to keep going on with it and they will end up disappointed as they always do no matter how the TV show plays out. There is no underlying crime for which they can prosecute Donald Trump, just as we've seen every time they've tried it for the last seven and a half years. So let's move to Twitter. Elon Musk on Friday morning tweeted, and soon, ladies and gentlemen, the coup de grace. Now, a coup de grace is a death blow often used in the context of taking someone out of their misery. It's a mercy killing after the person has been defeated. That's the coup de grace. So what is the coup de grace Elon Musk is referring to? It's hard to know. There was a Twitter file drop Friday afternoon. 
then the supplemental Saturday, then another one that's been happening today. But do any of those constitute the coup de grace? I don't believe that they do, but we shall see. Elon Musk did, however, put up a poll yesterday, a 12 hour long poll where he asked whether or not he should remain the CEO of Twitter. And the results came in that he should leave Twitter. It was like 57 to 43. And the results are a bit strange because the first million or so votes that rushed in were heavily favoring Elon Musk, maintaining his position, running Twitter. And then it flipped and it flipped dramatically. It flipped really quickly. And as Draza Smith, the brilliant statistician who's been doing a lot of work on election fraud and on things like cast vote records. Well, she posted this morning about how the last 7 million votes of that poll came in all at that 57-43 ratio, implying that there may be some sort of manipulation involved. And there may well be. There are still all sorts of bots on Twitter. I don't think anybody doubts that. But regardless, we shall see. Elon Musk said that he would abide by the results of that poll. So maybe he will. Maybe he'll step down as Twitter CEO. So who would replace him? Now, one interesting possibility is Jared Kushner. Elon Musk was at the World Cup final game in Qatar yesterday, sharing a box with Jared Kushner. They were photographed together at the event. And that has made many heads explode. What is Elon Musk doing with the president's son-in-law? Jared Kushner was a pretty powerful member of the Trump administration. He handled a lot of the negotiations in the Middle East that led to the Abraham Accords. But since the first Trump term ended, Jared has not really been in the foreground. And Ivanka has detached from public political life completely. So the picture alone was fairly remarkable because there is a certain set of people in this world, all of them in one way or another, Biden supporters. And for the record, Biden supporters include absolutely everybody who says they're a Republican and still won't admit that the 2020 election was stolen and that other elections are stolen. If you refuse to admit that you are supporting the regime, you are supporting Joe Biden. You can't get out of that. You are helping to create the air of legitimacy for an obviously illegitimate fake president. And no one should ever forget where these people have stood. But Biden supporters hate Elon Musk now the same way that they hate Donald Trump. And isn't that strange? They used to love Donald Trump when he was the rich, famous guy palling around with celebrities, hosting The Apprentice, going on Saturday Night Live. All of that was just fine. But once he was in politics and the television told everybody that Donald Trump is a mean old racist, well, then they just believed it and decided that was true. Same thing with Elon Musk. They used to love Elon Musk. He was the smartest man in the world. He was creating the technocracy that would allow them to live forever as they've always wanted to. And he was helping to save the planet from being attacked by the sun. He created Tesla and they love Teslas. They love being the person with a Tesla, just like they loved being a person with a Prius. But Tesla 
is more expensive and it's all electric, which means they get to be rich and signal greater virtue. The Tesla for them was perfect and they loved everything about it. They want to tell you about their Tesla all day long. Hey, my Tesla can drive itself. And sure, Kami, that sounds fantastic because driving is just too hard. But they love Trump, then they hate him. They love Elon Musk, then they hate him. They love Kanye West, then they hate him. They will hate whoever the television tells them to hate. So now they hate Elon Musk and Elon Musk being with Jared Kushner combines multiple levels of their hate. The only thing that could have been worse is if Elon Musk and Kanye and Trump were all sitting there together. That would have made them absolutely melt down. So if Jared becomes the new CEO of Twitter, that would be hysterical. It would also suggest that there is even more reason to believe an idea I've been kicking around for the last month or so, which is that Elon Musk didn't actually buy Twitter in the way we've been told. And I've gone into that a few times on various shows. I talked about it with Sean Morgan on the episode of Making Sense of the Madness that'll be out later today. But the idea is basically Twitter is an information weapon that we know was at best infiltrated by the FBI and the CIA on behalf of the global regime, but infiltrated to the point where there's no defining line where one ends and one begins. They're just basically the same thing. The state has combined with the corporate in order to censor and propagandize the citizens in every way imaginable. That is fascism. And it is working on behalf of that global regime and under their control. There's no reason to believe that the CIA and the FBI and other organizations were not way more involved in what happened at Twitter than we've been led to believe so far, including even by the Twitter files. Now, Mike Benz is a guy to keep an eye on at Mike Benz Cyber, B-E-N-Z is how you spell his last name. That guy is bringing the details on all of this stuff. But we're talking about technology that is intimately connected to law enforcement, uh, global intelligence, Department of Defense, DARPA, etc. So we know at best, even if they don't technically own Twitter and it's just, you know, Saudi princes and transnational corporations who own it, they at least controlled it and had domineering control over it for a very long time. So can you Take away the regime's information weapon simply by offering up $44 billion. My instinct is to say no. And the reaction to Elon Musk taking over suggests that the regime isn't very happy with how things have gone. Considering all of this and issues like their legal counsel, which no one can find, and the fact that. Saudi Prince Al-Walid had money in there before and after, despite his power struggle that he lost with Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. There were reports years ago that Al-Walid's assets were being seized. So there's a lot of things here that make me skeptical about the story we've been told. I can't flesh out the whole idea. So this is by and large uh, speculation. 
but it's something to watch for as we go forward. And if Jared Kushner steps into the CEO role, you have to assume at that point that something much deeper is going on. Now, a lot of people out there think it might be Jack Dorsey who steps back into the CEO role of Twitter, too. And that is certainly a possibility. The regime and its supporters might think that's a great idea. But Elon Musk, even if he steps down as CEO, is not just giving the company back to the people he acquired it from. If Jack Dorsey does step in, they can celebrate it a little while if they like. But I don't think it's going to get them very far. Regardless, it's impossible to say at this point. So we shall see. Let's get to Twitter files. Part six by Matt Taibbi. And this was from Friday. The Twitter files. Part six. Twitter, the FBI subsidiary. The Twitter files are revealing more every day about how the government collects, analyzes and flags your social media content. Twitter's contact with the FBI was constant and pervasive, as if it were a subsidiary. Between January 2020 and November 2022, there were over 150 emails between the FBI and former Twitter trust and safety chief Yoel Roth. Some are mundane, like San Francisco agent Elvis Chan wishing Roth a happy new year, along with a reminder to attend, quote, our quarterly call next week. Other requests for information into Twitter users related to active investigations. But a surprisingly high number are requests by the FBI for Twitter to take action on election misinformation, even involving joke tweets from low follower accounts. The FBI's social media focus task force known as FTIF created in the wake of the 2016 election swelled to 80 agents and corresponded with Twitter to identify alleged foreign influence and election tampering of all kinds. 80 FBI agents assigned to enhance Twitter's censorship regime. Twitter was expected to take down posts and throttle accounts based on these FBI referrals. Federal intelligence and law enforcement reach into Twitter included the Department of Homeland Security, which partnered with security contractors and think tanks to pressure Twitter to moderate content. Now, one of the interesting things that Mike Benz has been talking about on Twitter spaces is how the Department of Homeland Security also has purview over our elections as elections have been deemed critical infrastructure. But that's an entire subject on its own. So back to the Twitter files, Matt Taibbi. It's no secret the government analyzes bulk data for all sorts of purposes, everything from tracking terror suspects to making economic forecasts. The Twitter files show something new. Agencies like the FBI and DHS regularly sending social media content to Twitter through multiple entry points pre-flagged for moderation. What stands out is the sheer quantity of reports from the government. Some are aggregated from public hotlines. They actually have a thing set up. This is the FBI El Paso. He attaches a tweet from them from November 3rd, 2020, Election Day. They said Election Day protocol for FBI headquarters is to stand up a national election command post, which provides a centralized location for assessing election related threats. Status reports and complaints are tracked. Have a tip. Send it to tips.fbi.gov or call 915-832-5000. So they want people's tips on who's putting out election 
disinformation, for instance. An unanswered question. Do agencies like FBI and DHS do in-house flagging work themselves or farm it out? And he quotes one former intelligence officer. You have to prove to me that inside the effing government, you can do any kind of massive data or AI search. And so the implication here is that they were actually pushing this out to corporate third parties to tell them what they needed to tell Twitter to censor. And you can see as they continuously involve more third parties, how expansive this growth of the surveillance state has become much of it allowed, by the way, by the Patriot Act. Hello, Twitter contacts. The master canine quality of the FBI's relationship to Twitter comes through in this November 2022 email in which FBI San Francisco is notifying you it wants action on four accounts. So what Taibi is pointing out is that the FBI talks in almost this paternalistic way to Twitter, like they're Twitter's boss and everyone on the email understands it. It's not the government giving advice to a private corporation. It's the government telling the corporation what it must do vis-a-vis its own users. Twitter personnel in that case went on to look for reasons to suspend all four accounts, including at Froma, F-R-O-M-M-A, whose tweets are almost all jokes, including his quote unquote civic misinformation of November 8th. And the joke in question was him recommending that Republicans remember that Election Day is on Wednesday, November 9th, and that they should go vote. Now, that's obviously incorrect, but it's also obviously a joke. And that's not the sort of thing that the FBI needs to involve itself with. Just to show the FBI can be hyper intrusive in both directions, they also asked Twitter to review a blue leaning account for a different joke, except here it was even more obvious that Claire Foster, Ph.D., who kids a lot, was kidding. And in the tweets referenced, the account is pretending to be an election worker. The jokes were, I'm a ballot counter in my state. If you're not wearing a mask, I am not counting your vote. Safety first. And for every negative comment on this post, I'm adding another vote for the Democrats. Now, again, that might confuse some people about the election, but it's a joke. Anyone who cannot discern obvious satire from reality has no place making decisions for others or working for the feds, said Claire Foster, the person who tweeted that when told about the flagging of the six accounts mentioned in the previous two emails, all but two were suspended in an internal email from November 5th, 2022. The FBI's National Election Command Post, which compiles and sends on complaints sent the San Francisco field office a long list of accounts that, quote unquote, may warrant additional action. Agent Chan passed the list on to his Twitter folks. Twitter then replied with its list of actions taken. They permanently suspended a handful of the accounts. They temporarily suspended another. And then they, quote unquote, bounced certain tweets for civic misinformation policy violations. One of the names on the list was Billy Baldwin. That's Alec Baldwin's brother. And nothing whatsoever happened with his account. Many of the above accounts were satirical in nature, nearly all with the exceptions of Baldwin and RSB Network. That's RSBN, 
were relatively low engagement and some were suspended most with a generic thanks Twitter letter. And he means, of course, the form letter that they send you when they tell you that your account has gone bye bye. When told of the FBI flagging, one of the users at Lexitola replied, my thoughts initially include one seems like a prima facie First Amendment violation Two, holy cow, me, an account with the reach of an amoeba and three, what else are they looking at? I can't believe the FBI is policing jokes on Twitter. That's crazy, said Tiberius 444, one of the other accounts. In a letter to former Deputy General Counsel and former top FBI lawyer Jim Baker on September 16th, 2022, legal executive Stacia Cardeal outlines results from her quote unquote soon to be weekly meeting with DHS, DOJ, the FBI and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. So she's a Twitter legal exec taking weekly meetings or soon to be weekly meetings with DHS, DOJ, FBI, and the office of the DNI. And this is September 2022. The Twitter exec writes, she explicitly asked if there were, quote unquote, impediments to the sharing of classified information with the industry. And the answer, as she writes it, quote, FBI was adamant, no impediments to sharing exist. They're talking about sharing classified information, the FBI sharing classified information with the social media, the big tech industry. And this implies, by the way, beyond Twitter, Google, Facebook, who else? Who else were they sharing classified information with? We've been told, by the way, that Donald Trump taking classified information to Mar-a-Lago, which he declassified, is a great violation. It harms our national security. We need a Mar-a-Lago raid and we need to send Trump to prison for taking classified information, even though the FBI is passing classified information along to Twitter. This passage underscores the unique one big happy family vibe between Twitter and the FBI. With what other firm would the FBI blithely agree to no impediments to classified information? At the bottom of that letter, she lists a series of escalations apparently raised at the meeting, which were already handled. About one, she writes, flagged a specific tweet on Illinois use of modems to transmit election results in possible violation of the civic integrity policy. And in parentheses, except they do use that tech in limited circumstances. So the underlying claim about modems transmitting election results was, of course, true. And they treated it as if it was misinformation that violates their civic integrity policy. Another internal letter from January 2021 shows Twitter execs processing an FBI list of quote unquote possible violative content tweets. Here, too, most tweets contained the same. Get out there and vote Wednesday trope and had low engagement. This is what the FBI spends its time on. In this March 2021 email, an FBI liaison thanks a Twitter exec for the chance to speak, quote unquote, to you and the team, and then delivers a packet of, quote unquote, products. And it sounds like they're referring to intelligence products. Again, going from the FBI to Twitter. 
This is the level they're operating on when it comes to censoring American citizens. And once again, it's worth pointing out that all through these releases, these email releases that are coming out in the Twitter files, names are redacted over and over again. We don't know why those names are redacted and we don't know who's redacting them, but it sure doesn't seem like it's Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss and Michael Schellenberger. It seems like these names have been redacted at a higher level before it got to them, which makes you wonder who went through and did these redactions. The executive circulates the products, which are really DHS bulletins stressing the need for greater collaboration between law enforcement and private sector partners. The ubiquity of the 2016 Russian interference story as stated pretext for building out the censorship machine can't be overstated. It's analogous to how 9-11 inspired the expansion of the security state. So they are still operating on the false premise that Russia hacked our elections, that Russian influence is what made Donald Trump president. That was the basis on which they erected the censorship regime. While the DHS in its products pans permissive social media for offering operational advantages to Russians, it also explains that the domestic violent extremist threat requires addressing information gaps. And here's the paragraph attached. Information gaps and challenges associated with the individualized nature of radicalization could be partially mitigated with increased collaboration between law enforcement, terrorism prevention efforts, and private sector partners. We judge these partnerships would improve our ability to detect changes in domestic violent extremist trends and provide early warnings of potential attacks. So they go from Russia, Russia, Russia to Anyone who disagrees with the regime's narrative should be treated as a terrorist, domestic, violent extremist. And we've heard them say it throughout the last two years. So none of this should come as any surprise. This is how they have defined Donald Trump and his supporters. It's how they define anyone who challenges the stolen 2020 election or challenges the insurrection narrative. They labeled people as terrorists simply for going and speaking at their kids' school board meetings. The FBI, in one case, sent over so many possible violative content reports, Twitter personnel congratulated each other in Slack for the monumental undertaking of reviewing them. They were happy that they got such a massive task from the FBI accomplished. This is what made them happy at Twitter. There were multiple points of entry into Twitter for government flagged reports. This letter from Agent Chan to Roth references Teleporter, a platform through which Twitter could receive reports from the FBI. Now, I've never heard of this platform. I don't know anybody who'd ever heard of this platform, but apparently this is one of the portals they've created to make their job of censoring American citizens on behalf of the government in partnership with the corporation all that much easier. Reports also came from different agencies. Here, an employee recommends bouncing content based on evidence from DHS, etc. State governments also flagged content. And we know that's true. The California Secretary of State appeared in a FOIA document released from Judicial Watch. And my face is in that release. The California Secretary of State had a post on Instagram censored. I was talking about how the California Secretary of State 
changed my voter registration to permanent mail-in ballot only without my doing, without my consent, without my permission. So we have known about state governments getting involved in this. They have portals as well. Twitter, for instance, received reports via the Partner Support Portal, an outlet created by the Center for Internet Security, a partner organization to the DHS. Why was no action taken? Below, Twitter execs receiving an alert from California officials by way of our quote-unquote partner support portal debate whether to act on a Trump tweet. So there's an internal discussion at Twitter because California wants to know why no action was taken on one of their reported tweets. Here, a video was reported by the Election Integrity Project at Stanford, apparently on the strength of information from the Center for Internet Security. Mike Benz in Twitter Spaces last night mentioned that Stanford is the university hotspot for censorship. That would make Stanford one of the universities specifically targeted in Donald Trump's announcement about censorship last week. That university would have their federal funding removed for their participation in the censorship regime. If that's confusing, it's because the CIS is a DHS contractor, describes itself as partners with the Cyber Security and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, at the DHS. And people have done quite a bit of work on this, reporting misinformation to the EIISAC. Tori says has done work on this. My buddy Brian Lupo CanCon has done work on this. Patel Patriot, John Harold, he's done work on this. There's a lot of great stuff you can read out there about the details of all of this. The Election Integrity Project is one of a series of government-affiliated think tanks that mass review content, a list that also includes the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Laboratory and the University of Washington's Center for Informed Policy. The takeaway. What most people think of as the deep state is really a tangled collaboration of state agencies, private contractors, and sometimes state-funded NGOs. The lines become so blurred as to be meaningless. And here's Taibi's supplemental from yesterday. In July of 2020, San Francisco FBI agent Elvis Chan tells Twitter executive Yoel Roth to expect written questions from the Foreign Influence Task Force, the FITF, the interagency group that deals with cyber threats. Here's the message. Yoel, I believe FTIF would like a response ahead of our meeting the week of August 10th. It can be a written response or we can set up a phone call, whatever is easiest for you. I think you can tell from the nature of the questions that there was quite a bit of discussion within the USIC to get clarifications from your company. Let me know how you would like to proceed. Thanks. Regards, Elvis. The questionnaire authors seem displeased with Twitter for implying in a July 20th DHS ODNI FBI industry briefing. So that's Department of Homeland Security, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the FBI and the big tech industry briefing, or perhaps by this point, they mean the censorship industry that quote, you had indicated you had not observed much recent activity from official propaganda actors on your platform. One would think that would be good news. The agencies seem to feel otherwise. Chan underscored this. There was quite a bit of discussion within the USIC to get clarifications from your company. He wrote, referring to the United States intelligence community. 
The task force demanded to know how Twitter came to its unpopular conclusion. Oddly, it included a bibliography of public sources, including a Wall Street Journal article attesting to the prevalence of foreign threats, as if to show Twitter they got it wrong. Roth, receiving the questions, circulated them with other company executives and complained that he was, quote, frankly perplexed by the requests here, which seem more like something we'd get from a congressional committee than the bureau. Oh, so you're getting them from congressional committees, too? He added he was not, quote, comfortable with the bureau and by extension, the IC, the intelligence community demanding written answers. Really, Yoel? Why wouldn't you be comfortable with that? Don't you want to put it on the record? The idea of the FBI acting as conduit for the intelligence community is interesting, given that many agencies are barred from domestic operations. Isn't that incredible? So they just give it off to another agency. And they're all accomplishing the same things. And isn't it interesting that our intelligence community, like the CIA, for instance, is part of the Five Eyes intelligence sharing community, the UK, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, all of those. Well, they're still kind of part of the British crown, aren't they? What does that say about us? Why are we sharing all our information with all of them and with the British crown? And then who from that set of world-saving Power Rangers coming together to defeat evil is determining what the FBI should ask Twitter to censor. And once again, it's worth noting, it should be alarming how expansive this is. He then sent another note internally, saying the premise of the questions was flawed because, quote, We've been clear that official state propaganda is definitely not a thing on Twitter. Note the italics for emphasis. So here's the attached message from Yoel Roth, privileged and confidential. One other follow up in rereading the doc, the entire premise seems flawed. In our June 2020 briefing, we did not indicate that we, quote, had not observed much recent activity from official propaganda actors on your platform, end quote. I re-reviewed my notes from that briefing, and there's a specific item calling out official propaganda outlets as a major factor. And in multiple follow-ups with Elvis, and we've been clear that official state propaganda is definitely a thing on Twitter, but that it's different in terms of how we can handle it than clandestine fake accounts. My recommendation is to get on the phone with Elvis ASAP and try to straighten this out. I'm concerned that there's swirl somewhere in the IC about a statement that may have been fundamentally misunderstood. And he asks a redacted name. Would you be okay with me reaching out to Elvis today to try to do that in advance of more formally engaging with the doc they sent? This exchange is odd, among other things, because some of the bibliography materials cited by the FITF are sourced to intelligence officials who in turn cited public sources. And so if you go back to the letter, what the intelligence community is citing as the basis for the claims they're making is stuff that exists in public through newspapers and universities. They cite the Oxford Internet Institute at the University of Oxford, the Foreign Policy Research Institute, the Mercator Institute for China Studies, and the Wall Street Journal. 
That doesn't suggest that the intelligence community and the law enforcement community have found out about grave threats to American national security. That suggests they're prepared to justify their position, their agenda on whatever they can find that supports it. And it's pretty thin. The FBI responded to Friday's report by saying it, quote, regularly engages with private sector entities to provide information specific to identified foreign malign influence actors, subversive, undeclared, covert or criminal activities. So you get it. They were just trying to save the country, which is something they always do. Nothing to see here. Taibbi writes, that may be true, but we haven't seen that in the documents to date. Instead, we've seen mostly requests for moderation involving low follower accounts belonging to ordinary Americans and Billy Baldwin. Now, Taibbi has continued his coverage of all of this on his Substack, but he did add on a really interesting tweet last night and a screenshot from the Twitter Slack channel. It says only there's not a lot of context here. It says starting to hear from partners and the response that comes back is Schiff's comms director. The name is redacted, reached out to commend our work. So that sounds like Adam Schiff's people are in direct contact with Twitter. Now, we can talk about the FBI. We can talk about the CIA. We can talk about state governments having portals. We can talk about all these things. These are elements of our government influencing the censorship of a quote unquote private corporation in partnership with that corporation. They are using a third party to violate the most basic rights of American citizens. They are expressly not allowed to shift the responsibility for violating the rights of citizens onto third parties. It is like they are doing it themselves. That is how it is seen. That's how it should be considered. So Adam Schiff himself is trying to censor American citizens in violation of the First Amendment. That is the point we have reached in this government. So I am going to visit family for the holidays. I will be in a pretty poor internet area. So I'm going to be a little out of the loop this week. I will try to get some shows done because honestly, I cannot believe how much is happening. And if huge things happen, I'm going to want to talk about them and I'm going to want to get shows up. I will do my best to make that happen. This afternoon, I am interviewing a man named Robert Beatles. Our conversation will be live streamed on Badlands Media. But after that, I think I am going to probably record another podcast, which will go up tomorrow, and that will cover the seventh installment of the Twitter files that is rather explosive. So I'll put that up as a Tuesday episode and no promises about Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, but I will do my best. So I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. 
The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!